members of the Merry Marvel Marching Society, get high stepping, get your toes tapping, because we are forming a parade and marching down the avenues, singing songs about all the new Marvel comics coming out on March 10th, 2021. Here on Marvel's pull list, we, of course, will be talking about all the new Marvel comics headed to your local comic shop. I'm Tucker Marcus, and today we welcome back to the show Marvel Entertainment, assistant manager of social media, fan fave, fan flavorite, Alana Hernson. Hey, buddy. Hey, Tucker. Thank you so much for filling in. Thank you so much for... In addition to all of the everything that you do every day, every week, every weekend at Marvel, you are reading a whole load of books this week so we could talk about them. Well, you know, all of the everything is nothing compared to spending time with you, Tucker. Wow. What a nice sentence that was. For you, listener, we are counting down all of the books that are hitting your local comic shop on March 10th, talking about what's in them, talking about our favorites, talking about the good stuff on the way to you this week. And then we also have an interview, one that I was so, so excited about with Thorun Gronback, who is the co-writer with Jason Aaron on the Valkyrie book, the Jane Foster book. What a joy, what a delight, what an incredible writer, incredible artist, incredible portrait artist, painter, unbelievable talent across the board. Super fun, you'll definitely wanna listen to that. But first, Alana, we're talking about our picks of the week. And you want to kick things off? Do I ever. The first book that I think that we should talk about today is one that has been a year in the making yeah, at this point. Yeah, at least. It's crazy. <laughs> I've been looking forward to it for so long. And that is Children of the Atom, number one, written by Vita Ayala, art by Bernard Chang, and colors by Marcelo Maiolo. My God, this book was so much fun, Tucker. So basically, you have the X-Men and the mutants who are on Krakoa, right? And all mutants were sent basically a psychic message that was like, come to Krakoa, everyone who's a mutant, you're all welcome here. But there are these kids who are mutants, with a question mark, who don't want to come to Krakoa yet, but they do want to fight crime. They still have to finish school. They still want to live out their lives as teenagers. So they're not quite ready to take that leap and leave their families behind. But they're obsessed with the X-Men. So it's these kids and you're wondering like, okay, so what if the X-Men had sidekicks? And that's really the crux of what this book is exploring. And it's just so much fun to read. It's a really great number one start. Uh, an exploration into what Vita's going to be exploring in this book. I still do feel like I'm getting to know what kind of writer Vita is. And we had Danny Lore, Vita's best friend on the show, to talk about Morbius a couple of weeks ago. And that was really fun, but also really insightful because they talk all the time and they discuss their stories together. Of course, Danny is taking over the Champions book. So it was really cool to get that behind the scenes kind of insight on what kind of things that Vita is interested in. So kicking off a huge book like this, that's not just a new number one, but that's joining the ranks of all the amazing stuff going on in the world of the X-Men. It was really cool and felt like a big, I mean, it's obviously a big new chapter in, you know, fans of Vita IL like you and I are. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I know these kids already. I feel like I am one of these kids who is just like, like Cyclops lass. 
<laughs> that is exactly the type of thing that like a Gen Z kid, like as like the wee child of this team, I'm on the cusp of Gen Z millennial. I'm very much a millennial. And like reading through this, I was like, oh my God, this is what like Gen Z X-Men fans turned X-Men would be like. <laughs> of course they would be just like, fangirling over their favorite mutants and being like, no, my costume's going to be like that one and I'm going to fight crime because I love them too. It's so great. All right, that's what we have. Number one for pick of the week. Number two, we have Daredevil number 28. It's written by a friend of the show, Chip Zdarsky with art by Marco Coquetto, colors by Marcio Meniz and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. I think it is more than public information now that Chip has included the information that Elektra is available on his wonderful newsletter. We've obviously been talking about that on the show and on Marvel.com and on social media and things like that. And there are issues where, you know, I think it was issue number 25 where, you know, you have this massive explosive battle happening all across Hell's Kitchen. It's this kind of big conflagration that's happening. And then you have issues like this where you're exploring a bunch of quiet moments across different characters from Elektra herself to Wilson Fisk to Daredevil, obviously, and what he's going through in prison. We kick this issue off, though, with Elektra working out, hitting the bag. You ever hit the bag, Alana? No, I do not. And you can tell. Um, and not only is she hitting the bag, one thing that I did notice is I think that she just has a giant painting of herself. I was <laughs> thinking the same thing. It was like, hang on. Whose apartment are we in again? Because that is awesome. I mean, the other like big thing, and this is something I've just gone nuts over, is the hair. Are you oh kidding my God, me? The hair. I want a book about the hair and nothing else. And in this issue, we get it like up in this kind of like high kind of ponytail kind of thing, but it's flowing everywhere. Marco bringing it to life in the most unbelievable way. I mean, we said this when we first got a glimpse of this look that like, this is one of those kind of iconic, forget about Daredevil looks, just like Marvel Comics artist character combinations that's just gonna go down in history, I think. Oh, absolutely. And especially because I feel like the hair is just such like an accurate visual representation of the character. She's this wild like mess of a woman who's constantly trying to contain herself, but letting herself go in those moments of like losing control for the sake of like exacting violence and revenge. It's just like, if I have ever seen hair describe a character is is when Marco is drawing Electra. <laughs> a million percent. I totally agree. And we have like what's become another great hallmark of this series, which is just an amazing exploration of the psyche of Matt Murdock. It's really interesting with this book because I feel like it's an exploration of both how Daredevil is dealing with the repercussions of the flawed justice system, but then also how Matt Murdock, as yeah. Matt Murdock himself, is dealing with the repercussions of the flawed justice system. And I feel like Chip is really tapping into something here where it feels larger than Daredevil almost, but it also feels so inherently like Matt Murdock focused. You read each book and I feel like I'm getting a civics lesson. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, let's jump back to the world of Krakoa, Alana, with your second pick of the week. Oh, you know it's where I want to be. My second pick of the week is X-Factor number eight, written by Leo Williams with art by David Badalon and colors by Israel Silva. Oh my God, X-Factor, Tucker. 
I feel like <laughs> X Factor is one of those books that just keeps ramping up yeah. in a way that feels so satisfying every time you read an issue. And I feel like it's really hats off to, in this case especially, the team of Leah and David. The way that they work together to craft the world of X Factor, I feel confident saying this. I've never seen a writer-artist pair that builds off of each other the way that these two do. Just like the way that they portray powers and the way that they communicate plot points through the art, but clearly also through Leah's plot and writing is just absolutely brilliant. Leah is one of those writers that just pisses me off because of how good Leah is. You're just like, how do you do it? You know what I mean? It just feels like doing backflips and making it look like nothing because of how talented a writer we're looking at. And like you said, when you pair that with an artist as expressive and talented as David Baldion, you get issues like this. Okay, give me six words to describe what goes down on this issue. Go! Death comes back to haunt the... Uh, that's six. All right, there you go. There you go. <laughs> and you know what? There's a, there's a cliffhanger. So I would say the V Ooh. at the end really works. Meta, nice. Nice. Really good. Okay. Well done. Um, all right. That's what we have for our picks this week. Now we're jumping into pulleys. We run down all the amazing stuff hitting shelves this week, and we're kicking it off with Amazing Spider-Man number 61. We get a new look for Spidey, which is so exciting. The incredible Patrick Gleason is bringing you the art in this issue, and there's a really, really cool new Spidey suit. But what was extra fun for me in this issue was seeing Boomerang right at the center of the action because it's obviously a big part of where this series kicked off and now we're coming around and seeing everything that Boomerang has to offer. And it feels like a classic, fun Spidey issue, which was great to see. So next up on the list, we have Conan the Barbarian number 19. And Conan is on a new sort of adventure here, which is really fun to see. He has a new lady friend. And I will say it again, Conan the Himbo. Yes. I was waiting for <gasps> we it. We lead with an ab shot, and then he is here <laughs> and just says, this lady is nice. I'm going to protect this lady. We drink to respect women juice in this house. <laughs> like, that is the entire issue, and it's so fun to see. If you want to see Conan be a sweet, nice boy who is also violent, read this issue. <laughs> yes. Now we're jumping over to Deadpool to celebrate a 30th birthday. What does that mean? I think that means Deadpool is probably driving a Ford Taurus now. He's settling down in like a sensible neighborhood. He's kind of leaving the party life behind. I don't really know what like the 30-year-old cliches are anymore. All of mine are like sourced from Jay Leno jokes. I think sourcing Jay Leno jokes is what it means to be 30. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. Okay. Uh, this is Deadpool Nerdy 30. Number one, it's a celebration of Deadpool's 30th anniversary. We have a bunch of the best ever when it comes to Deadpool stories in here. We have eight Deadpool little mini stories in here. I'll run through them real quick. We have uh, one by Joe Kelly, Scotty Young. We have Kelly Thompson, Kevin LaBranda, Fabian Nicieza is in here, Gail Simone, one of my faves. Daniel Way, of course, Jerry, Duggan, and Brian Posehn, Rob Liefeld and Chad Bowers, Scott Koblish, so many all-stars when it comes to the history of Wade Wilson. I loved this Scotty Young story in particular. It's like a baby Deadpool story, so it's kind of 
right in Scotty's wheelhouse, but I in particular loved the art on that by Aaron Conley. And then my eyes go straight to the Duggan and Posehn story, which was called Party for One. For me, you know, the Duggan Posehn run is up there with the best and then led straight to Jerry's run, which I think is the high watermark for Deadpool stories ever over the course of all 30 years. So if you love Deadpool, I think this one is probably on your list this week anyway, but uh, it comes highly recommended. Check it out. Next, we have Eternals number three, Only Death is Eternal, part three. I love this book so much. Everything that Kieran Gillen and Isad Rebic and Matt Wilson are doing on this book is just so well thought out and well plotted. It's the perfect blend of like, you know, your classic Marvel fun humor, but also it just feels so epic in scope. And especially I wanted to point out the art for this book, which is just so brilliant in helping bring that message to the forefront. It has this papery texture and this like faded out vibe really assisted by the colors by Matt Wilson that makes it feel all at once ancient and modern, which is what the Eternals are. They're eternal. And then you have this brilliant mechanism that Kieran Gillen employs by way of the narration by the machine. The way that Kieran Gillen writes the machine is just so witty and quippy, while the rest of the material is so serious that it really brings this fun dynamic to the entire book that is delightful. Yeah, totally agree. What a perfect creative team on that one. And speaking of perfect creative teams, next up, we got Immortal Hulk number 44. It still feels hard to believe that we're 44 issues deep. What an achievement by beautiful boys, Al and Joe. That's Al Ewing and Joe Bennett. This issue has some unique takes on the body horror stuff, which somehow Joe continues to find ways to do. It's really stunning to me. He's kind of reinvented the wheel in terms of what this book looks like and all the torturous stuff that we get to see this character go through. This issue, though, in particular, I was really excited about because what do we get in it? The best, I'll say it, the best short hirsute Canadian not named Wolverine. Yeah, we got some puck action in here. <laughs> so puck fans, sprint. Get your little butts down to the comic shop and check it out. Absolutely. I feel like there were at least 14 images in this book that will be my sleep paralysis demons tonight. <laughs> it was so unnerving to look at in the best way. So next up, we have Nonstop Spider-Man. And this was quite a kicker of an issue. I will caveat it. This was a pretty serious issue. So I just check up on the contents before you decide to pick it up. But I do really love that we're able to get this side of a Spider-Man story. This is Empire State University age Peter and sort of exploring the more serious side of the things that kids can be exposed to in college. And I think that the story does a really great job of dealing with that. And on the flip side of setting up, as Nick Lowe, editor, mentions in his note in the middle of the issue, the next big bad of the series. So definitely pick it up, but just note that it does turn a bit serious. Yeah, for sure. Now we're headed to Strange Academy number nine. This is a unique one. I really, really like the direction that it went in. Because obviously we have some of the great character moments and kind of youthful enthusiasm and laughs that 
you would get out of a book like this. But there were also some darker moments, which I really, really liked. And in a similar fashion to how I said, if you loved Puck, read Immortal Hulk this week. If you love costume design, mm-hmm. read Strange Academy. It's so good, right? All I will say is that there is like a almost like full page spread yes. of Wanda's outfit in this. And I just... It's unbelievable. It, I would get weird looks on the subway, <laughs> but I would wear it. Something that I really love about this book is just the hilarity of seeing all of your favorite like self-serious superheroes as teachers and the costume design almost like melds the two together. You're like, ah, yes, what would my English teacher wear (laughs) who also has like, you know, her corset for superheroing? You can always rely on this team to bring it with the design elements. It's really fun. Yeah, great stuff. A quick interlude before we continue on in the Mighty Marvel Universe as we head over to the realm of Star Wars. With Star Wars number 12, uh, we see Poe's mom and dad meet for the very first time. This is before Poe, of course, but seeing that happen is really, really cool. It's super fun. I think it's done in such a nice, organic, great way. And I also love Poe's dad's name, which is Kez. That's just a great Star Wars name, Kez Dameron. It's awesome. Anyway, uh, check it out. Star Wars number 12. Awesome. Next up, we have Taskmaster number four. This Taskmaster run has been quite the adventure. (laughs) A character that I never really delved into before this, but Taskmaster is so much fun. Like his inner monologue is almost Deadpool-esque in how absurd he is in his line of thinking. There was also a very interesting line This whole no wives, no girlfriends, no mothers policy. (laughs) I'll let you dig into that in the issue, but it brought up uh, some really interesting thoughts from Tony Masters I was not expecting from this character. Yes, right there with you. Hey, we never pass up an opportunity to shout out Jed McKay, who is a freak talent. Speaking of freak talents, we have writer Mariko Tamaki bringing us the next issue this week, which is Thor and Loki Double Trouble number one. I am an enormous fan of Mariko's work. She's amazing, unbelievable, a writer that can do anything, right? Sort of just the most dramatic, serious, mature work. And then also bringing, you know, something like Double Trouble, which we've gotten a bunch of great issues of, which is a sort of all readers book. I think the combination of Mariko Tamaki and Guruhiro, who is the artist on this book and series, I think it's just, there's something special between those two. And I think as we get into all the Thor and Loki fun in here, it's borne out in the best way. Great stuff here and just a super, super fun read. Absolutely. This one was just a delight. It was a little respite during the day, just like a little snack. That's right. Last, but certainly not least... We have Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood number four. I love the Black, White, and Blood concept. It just really is such a artist-first mentality that is beautiful to look at, but really is intrinsic to the storytelling itself in a way that is really interesting, especially for the characters that have been chosen to be a part of the Black, White, and Blood series. You have three different stories in here. If you need to explain who Wolverine is as a character, you can give someone just this issue. You get every facet of him. He's the tortured soul who, like, loves too deeply and has lost too much. But then he's also, like, 
this killing machine who's seeking justice. But then at the end, you get like the little, you know, sarcastic, like sass master Wolverine that is super fun. It just encompasses the character and has one of my favorite quintessential crazy comics moments that I love that I'm not going to spoil too much, but just like when a T-Rex shows up, keep an eye out because it's really delightful. Yeah. Some amazing creators on this issue. I in particular want to shout out Kari Randolph, who I think has like a level up moment in here. I've always been a big fan of Kari's, but to see the work he does in here in particular, like you said, this is like a huge platform for artists and it's something that I love as well. And I think he knocks it out of the dang park. So much good stuff this week. Go check it out online. Check it out at your local comic shop. Now, Alana, we are jumping over to Collected Editions which includes a bunch of great stuff if you're a fan of Star Wars, if you're a fan of some of the groundbreaking work by Donny Cates, Ryan Stegman, Ivan Coelho, and company with Venom, a new collection of Venom, Venom Beyond, is available there. We have Fantastic Four by Dan Slott. Just great stuff, as well as some himbo action in there as well. So that's what we have for new comics. That's what we have for new collections. We also, of course, have new stuff on Marvel Unlimited this week. I want to name MODOK Head Games number one. If only because Ryan isn't here to do it himself, I will stand up and do it for my co-host there. Alana, anything good you see on there? Definitely want to point out Hellions number seven. Speaking of strong Xbox, Hellions is just so messed up in all the best ways. And another one just to shout out is Champions number three. I think that Champions is heading in a really fun direction. So you definitely want to be on board for that. Totally agreed. All right. That's all the new stuff that you can read this week. Now we are jumping over to the aforementioned interview that Ryan and I did. Today we'll be talking about 1602, the now legendary limited series from 2003 which, of course, is written by Neil Gaiman. We'll be talking with Thorun Gronbeck about that series and why it's so special. So many great things to dig into about that. Thorun, thank you so much for joining us here today. I cannot tell you how excited I am to chat with you. You're coming to us from Norway right now. Is that right? From Norway, yes. Where in Norway exactly? Well, I'm in, yes, I'm in a small city just outside of Oslo. It's a boring part, not a staggeringly beautiful part, but the practical part. Ryan and I are from Long Island and New Jersey, USA, respectively. So in terms of staggering beauty, we definitely know what you're talking about. The like beautiful <laughs> Norwegian landscapes. We get it. The Northern Lights. Yeah, we've, yeah, we've got yeah. those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I do. I have a cabin in Sweden that I go to quite a lot. That's in a forest. That's where I usually spend a lot of my time. But now the borders are closed and everything. And so people think I live there because that's when I take the pictures of like moose and foxes. And when they come and visit me, it'll be always a tiny bit of disappointment being like, oh, it's just suburbia. Just like, <laughs> that's fair. 
we bring it up because you know most of our creators that we talk to on the show are often in the states, and so it's very exciting for us to have you on the show. And also because we freaking love your work, we're very yeah. excited. You know, we've been talking about Valkyrie and Return of the Valkyries, and and we're going to be talking about the Mighty Valkyries coming up, which is very exciting stuff. Before we get into our reading club this week, which will be Marvel 1602, could you tell us how you started at Marvel? What was your path to joining the House of Ideas? I'd written a book and I was at New York Comic Con and I was having dinner with John McRae and I was just meeting him in a bar. I love John. He's a good friend of mine. John is one of my favorite artists and just the sweetest man. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. The sweetest man. And I was meeting him in a tiki bar and he was sitting there with two people and I sat down and I had a conversation. I told the most horribly embarrassing story (laughs) you will ever hear. And then we left and John went... You know, that was Jason Aaron, right? What? <laughs> and I kind of figured like that is it's, it's the worst possible way to introduce yourself. Just being like, I'm a mess. Anyway, I told that story and Jason just went, this person, I want to work with her <laughs> for reasons unknown. And so we, we chatted a bit. He read some of my work. And when Al Ewing was stepping away from Valkyrie, they needed another co-writer so Jason sent Will Moss some of my work. And then I woke up one morning with an email from Will going, Jason has probably told you this, but we want you to join Valkyrie. And it's like, Jason has not told me anything. <laughs> wow. But wow. excellent. And as an introduction to Marvel, starting with something like Valkyrie, with Will Moss and Sarah Brunstad as editors, with Jason, with Kafu, like, it is a dream couldn't be better. And it's one year today that my first book was released. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, that's great. What an introduction. I'm assuming you were a fan of Jason Aaron's work before then and thus could quantify how big a deal it is to have Jason Aaron's word of recommendation that goes straight to, you know, one of the best comic editors in the biz. It's a little mind-blowing. I'm kind of happy that because they sent me an email going, hey, are you open to do this thing? And by the way, we need the first script in two weeks or something. And I'm rather (laughs) happy about that because I didn't have time to freak out. And Jason is such a good guy. He's a really good friend of mine now, and, and I trust him in everything. But it didn't really hit me until the announcement came and all the Jane Foster fans who are like the best fans in the world. And they all have these great stories about how much Jane means to them and why it's so important to them. So when the announcement came and I knew the book would come out, I had like a couple of days like, oh my God. But I'm fine now. I'm, I'm, You're great now. Well, I'm, I'm trying. No one's great at the moment. <laughs> Fair. I'm glad you brought that up about the fans. Because when I start to think about Jane Foster as Valkyrie, I think about Jane Foster as Thor, and I think about the initial sort of revelation about we would have a new Thor, and it was a woman. And we were in one of the um, the Marvel Comics editorial retreats, and I was sitting next to Jason chatting, and we had just put out the press release, and I had shared it on Twitter, and I was getting vitriol. And Jason was starting to get it, and I remember thinking like, oh man, but this is such a cool story. There's so many things that are going to be like revealed here and people don't know what's actually going on. And then over time, the positivity became the force behind it all. And where we are now is so different from where we are. We were at the beginning. And as you've said, Jane means so much to so many people. And it's really been a beautiful journey. 
At, at least for the Jane fans, I think that she kind of had that story arc and became Thor. I think that's one of the most important things that has ever happened in comics and for women in comics as well. I think it was a huge thing. I think now that it's that storyline is over, I think the legacy is just, it was one of the greatest stories ever told. We're talking today about 1602. Thorne, I was wondering why you picked 1602, what the first time you read it was, what your reaction to it was, why it still holds so much power for you to this day. The thing is, when I read it the first time, I didn't know anything about it at all. The thing is, we don't get single issues in Norway. So I was a trade reader my entire youth. I had like some characters that I followed, but I didn't see the Marvel Universe as like the whole big thing. So ironically, this is my introduction to the wider Marvel Universe. So when I, the first time I read it, and it's great in itself, but afterwards, that's when I started checking out more of the Marvel characters. So it holds a special place to me because of that. But it is also standalone. If you don't know anything, it'll still be a great story. It works on so many levels. It works kind of historically. I like it. It's neat. <laughs> neat is the, kind of the perfect <laughs> word for it. One of the things I love about this reading club section that Tucker and I have been doing is revisiting works. I hadn't read this in many years, and for whatever reason, in my head, my opinion of it was not the highest. Even though I absolutely adore the creative team, which is, it, the book is written by Neil Gaiman. It is penciled by Andy Kubert. The painting, the coloring is done really beautifully by Richard Isanov. The letters are by Todd Klein, who is an incredible letterist. And the covers are unlike anything else we really have on a shelf by Scott McKeown. And then it's edited by Rapscallion, Nick Lowe, among others. And so I went into this reread for the show to talk to you with like some hesitation almost. And I came out of it being like, oh man, I love this story. It's a lot. It's densely packed with little Easter eggs and details and it's very wordy. It's got a lot of like intricacies, ton of characters. It is a Marvel Universe story, but it is so charming and so wonderfully paced and it builds in such great ways. I came out of it being like, I think I have a hardcover of this somewhere. I got to put that on the shelf. This is a keeper. Thorne, in addition to being a great writer, you're also an incredible artist. And I was wondering... From both of those perspectives, when you're reading something in general, whether it's 1602 or otherwise, do you feel like you gravitate towards one over the other? You relate to one or the other? You find yourself analyzing the writing more or the art more? Or are you able to just put that aside, put the professional side away and just kind of take it in as a fan? Well, first of all, I don't draw comics. I don't think I would be able to. I just paint portraits mainly. But I do think very visually. And what I like is when I forget that I do anything, when I just get drawn into something and that's all I'm doing. I would say that the reason I both write comics and paint is because of Steve Dillon and his, you know, his silent panels with just the reaction shots. You and I are like, we have the same taste in artists. Steve <laughs> Dillon is my all-time favorite artist aside from Jack Kirby. I was writing a novel. I kind of got to the part where I was like, I just 
I don't want to write this. I just want one of Steve's panels right here. And I just put the thing away and started writing comics. And it was like that. Just This is what I'm doing now. So I give him all the credit. Fair enough. We just were joined by editor Nick Lowe. Nick, we were just talking about the glory and the majesty of Steve Dillon. And so I know you you would appreciate that conversation. Oh, Steve Dillon, not only one of the greatest comic book artists of all time, but one of the best dudes as well. Nick, we have you on the show, not just to talk about Steve Dillon, but specifically, we wanted to get a little perspective from you because this week we're discussing Marvel 1602 because that was the choice that Thorin chose for us. So you were assistant editor and then full editor on the book during its run? Yeah, so I started working at Marvel Knights, which was at the time like a kind of a, a slightly separate entity. And on my first day as an assistant editor, as really an editorial assistant, I got to look at the first five or six pages that Andy Kubert turned in and got to call Neil Gaiman to bug him for script. So I started as an assistant editor and I was assisting on it for the first six months. I'd already even switched to the ultimate office at that point by the time the issues started coming out, but I'd been working on it for a year with them. And it is one of my favorite things I ever got to do. Working with Neil, of course, was absolutely incredible. And then the same thing, working with Andy Kubert, what a guy, what an artist. Working with Richard Isenov, like what an amazing guy, what an amazing artist. And Todd Klein lettering. And like to get to work with Todd Klein right out of the gate spoiled me rotten. Everyone is genius level on that whole team. And then, I mean, also Joe Casada and Nancy Casada, you know, went by Nancy DeCasey and Kelly Lammy, who we all worked on through the whole thing. The whole team was a dream. Stuart Moore was involved a little bit at the beginning as well. It was such a wonderful education in comics. Even the cover artist, Scott McCowan. A little story about that. I was a very ambitious young editorial assistant. And there were sometimes these um, illustration books just floating around the office. And I would page through them and tag the things like, oh, I bet that person could do comics. I bet that person could do covers. And I happened upon Scott McCowan's couple pages that he had in this booklet. And I actually recognized some of them from the work he'd done at the Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland, where I grew up and did a little acting growing up. And I was, oh, this is actually be really cool for 1602. And I brought it, the book into Joe's office. He was editor-in-chief and editor of Marvel Knights. And I showed it to Joe. He's like, I love it. He's like, try to get him. It's like, sounds good. And like, you know, like, and so I just went off and got Scott. And like the covers that Scott did on those are, they're scratchboard covers. They look like something from an ancient printing press. And I'll again, get into the technique there a little bit too. No other comic book on the shelf had that art style, that art medium at all. I've never seen another comic cover like that. And to Joe's credit, he's like, let's try it. Let's do it. Why not? Neil loved it. Scott, he's a, he mainly does theater posters, but he, these are the only comics I think he's ever done. And he does it basically on like a cardboard. It's called scratch board. He'll sketch it on pencil on this board. And with a razor blade, he like cuts away each strip and then adds the color digitally. What an amazing talent. And he made covers it. It was just through sheer force of Joe's will and support to make those covers happen. And it was amazing. I think the covers was the reason I bought it in the first place. We're kind of walking through all the trades, not knowing what to pick up and just going, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And they are. And that's so wonderful to hear you say that, Torin. We're trying to do something different. And the freedom that Joe gave us to do that was just amazing. And the support and Scott's talent is obviously immense. It sent a message that this is something different. This is not your normal comic book. Like Neil wrote 
like only Neil writes. And there are so many wonderful things that he taught me. One story I think I often tell with this is either an issue one or two, when you first meet the Charles Xavier, the Charles Javier. And Andy Kubert drew like on his desk in silhouette, there was like this dinosaur. And Neil called me after some pages came. He's like, Nick, have you seen there's a dinosaur? There's a small dinosaur on-, on- Is this your Neil Gaiman impression? Is this what we're doing? <laughs> <laughs> why that would be and i was like i have no idea and i think i might write that in and so in later issues you can see this small tiny dinosaur walk up and xavier feeds him when i called andy and asked me he's like i mean i just thought like he's into evolution maybe he'd have a, and i love drawing dinosaurs i just you know i might put a dinosaur in there and, and like i thought it'd be like a statue or something like you know he's really into that so, but like but neil took it and ran with it there was like a couple other like really interesting things that, that hit me and that I still carry with me there. The big reveal that happens in the second last issue, Andy, he asked, and I was like, can I turn this Rojas reveal into a, like a splash page? But I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's a huge reveal. Like it's a big moment. Like, it, like that makes sense to me. And I'm, you know, I was like, we can't, we can't do that because, and then his reasoning was, is that oftentimes in comic shops, like, you can flip through a book and if we make it a big reveal, like that'll be so easily given away. People will know it's a big reveal right there. Whereas like it's one panel on like a six panel page when he says it. And so it hits you like a ton of bricks. There's no fanfare and it's just this incredible moment. It feels like the kind of perfect opening salvo for an editor's career to not just work with people who are incredible at their jobs, but people who are so good that they can not just take risks in ways that are explosive, but in ways that exactly like you mentioned um, with that reveal that are almost subversive in their risk taking. It's just fascinating for me as a third party here to track this, not just as a creative work of art, but as, you know, from an editorial perspective, Nick, to see like, oh, this does make sense for me just looking at where you've gone and how that's, you know, was such a big part of how you started. I mean, so much of it that I attribute to Joe and Nancy, both for their courage and their support. I try to be Joe as often as I can. He was so careful with the choices he made, but also so fearless and so courageous and infectious in how he'd get everyone on board with it. And sometimes it was frustrating. Like, you know, like sometimes his attention to detail and his pursuit of excellence, every book was like that, like for him, like everything was like, what's the coolest thing we can do? What's the most fun thing? What's the most true thing? How can we best support our creators who are working on this from the Bendis and Malev Daredevil to 1602 to all the Punisher stuff that Garth and Steve and then Garth and Derek and, uh, you know, Punisher born Marvel boy, Black Widow, all these things. And then when his editor in chief decision, like the ultimate line, like all these things, it was like, Let's be brave. Let's make the coolest choices we can and do our best support of our creators. And that was the mantra. And that's what I still try to live by to this day. But I mean, those collaborations are so magical. And one more thing I also want to point out is that like all of these creators, like every single person I mentioned is certainly on 1602 and same thing with Bourne. So many creators in comics, especially the ones at the top of their game were egoless. And these are people who if anyone has earned an ego in comics, it's these people that we've met. It's, you know, Neil and Andy and Richard and Garth and Derek and Steve and all these people, but they're just wonderful people down to earth. This is the best industry, guys. 
This is, and Gal, especially. And Soren, I'm so glad you're in it. Like, have you found that same thing? I hope as much as I have. I I, I had a moment a few years ago. I, I had an art exhibition in New York and I kind of made it happen. So New York Comic Con was the next day. And I kind of went from the, the exhibition being like, huh, well, sure, these are also pretentious people. And then I went to Comic-Con and I was like, oh yeah, these are my people. I mean, it's the most welcoming, nice, everyone is approachable. Everyone who's someone are nice people. And then the ones that aren't as nice, they tend to not get where they want to be. And you kind of really got to look to find those people who aren't nice. I will say like the percentage of wonderful, welcoming people I've found to be incredibly high in comics as opposed to other places that I've seen. And I find that now, during the pandemic, it's the comics people I miss the most. Before we let you go, um, Thorne, do you have any more, any questions or any uh, anything you want to ask Nick about your choice here, Marvel 1602? Did you go into it? It was kind of the, it was always the plan to do just like bringing as many people from the Marvel Universe as possible. Yeah, yeah. I think Neil wanted to do something that would be crazy, but it was also important to him that it wasn't just, you know, a what if or an Elseworlds or something like that. So that's why, like, those last couple issues are so key to how it ties into the Marvel Universe, like the Purple Man of it all and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, but he wanted to do that and he wanted to be as tricky as possible. He loves his surprises and stuff like the, the Fantastic Four and Doom. Like, I just remember reading the script and being blown away by like, his Doom is so good. His Doctor Doom is so good. <laughs> <laughs> like, and so gross and mean and like his love of nudity in there. Like, We got some Doom butt. And at some point when he's standing there and you see the Doom butt, he's facing Sue in the canister thing. Like a creep? <laughs> yeah. Oh, total creep. He is a straight up villain. Like he's like, yeah, I'm going to dress in front of this invisible person. But I think my favorite, um, I don't do like celebrity crushes or crushes on, like I have like three maybe, but one of them is Nicholas <laughs> Fury from this. <laughs> like he's just so he's hot. So I can't good. help myself. <laughs> I agree. I agree. His clothes, his boots, like he is... A saucy minx. <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those people who name my things. My phone is named Fury. Mm. And everyone just assumes it's because of the tank, because I'm a nut for like World War II stuff. But it's not. It's because of this Nicholas Fury. Just like to keep him close. <laughs> Nick, you mentioned um, Neil's scripts. I don't think I've read one of Neil's scripts. Do they have a lot of extra direction for the artist? Is it a lot more than what we get on the page? And Thorin, I would love to hear when you work on your scripts, is it a lot of direction for the artist and things that we don't see as readers? But Nick, what was it like with Neil? Yeah, I mean, Neil's are, like, I think of like the spectrum, like in my head, it's like Alan Moore to Warren Ellis, as far as like level of detail and insanity levels. Whereas like Alan Moore talks about like ends up what the postage stamps on the letters on the desk that are in the background of this thing, you know, like that sort of thing that famously like that. And then whereas like uh, Warren Ellis one is like the most spare description, like Monica runs down the hall. Next one, she jumps out the window. Like it's like the bare minimum of, of what you can give. And then everyone else kind of falls between. Neil's were not nearly what Alan Moore's were, but the thing I love about them is he, he basically writes them as letters to his artist. 
like you like chapter one like andy here we go like the, you know the goal is to have fun here let's let's like and the panel descriptions are just as charming he broke it down pretty concretely for andy and andy's not even someone who really you need to but that's just how neil writes to make sure that you know he gets there but he's obviously open to the collaboration but they're lovely they're charming they're fun they give you everything you need, but not much more than that. Like he doesn't go into great, like he very rarely with very few exceptions says like, you know, you know, worm's eye view shot or, you know, like gives like a grid on this page, like, or something like that, you know, like six panel grid, like only in very, like if it's a very specific idea that is like, this is the way this can work. And it only can work this way, you know, that sort of thing. But that's kind of like how his scripts are. Thorin, as you've been working with Jason a lot, what are your, the, the scripts like with the two of you? Well, I usually write the scripts and then Jason goes over and he adds all little things. Like I'll go on and have my little romantic bullshit with the world and everything. And, and then he'll come in and be like, Hildegard will run through over the Bifrost going, I'm the goddess of not giving a damn. And that's what everyone loves, of course, because he's so good at that stuff. <laughs> but I, I try to get a sense of the artist first because I can go on and on and on. I can tell you what they're wearing, but most people don't need that stuff. So I try to kind of cut it back. And especially with the Marvel artists, where you can just kind of go, there's a girl, they'll draw a girl. So I kind of try to adjust it a little bit. Right now I'm working with Mattia, who is just so good oh and he needs nothing. And whenever there's a detail, like we have now, we had a, a keychain, like a Viking keychain. It's not a spoiler. And then he kind of slides into my DMs going, hey, Viking keys, what were they like? And then we'll have a discussion about that because he figures that okay. is going to be an interesting detail. And I, I always put in all the horrible jokes that people don't get. And then if, like, my, my favorite thing is if Sarah finds something funny, if she marks something and go, ha-ha, in the, the, in the, like, the comments, I'm like, yes! Success. And you, you guys are such a great team, you and Mattia. And before that, the Jane Foster Valkyrie is one of my favorite books. And so I, I love your work there as well. All that stuff is so good. And, I, and I'm jealous that you guys have Mattia. What a talent. What I mean, I, I, I'm losing hours when I get his pages, just staring at them. Yeah. And I keep just shouting profanity into poor Will and Sarah's mailbox, being like, have you seen this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we, we were the ones who sent it to you. <laughs> but have you, I mean, he makes Craven look hot. I'm just saying, you're going you're gonna to look at Craven and going to be like, hey, those lion nipple eyes. <laughs> I mean, it's the look you're 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 going to want like a lion main thing happening Thorne, I, you're almost talking as yeah. we already don't want that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> has anyone ever not drawn craven to be super hot you're talking to club craven here we're uh oh god <laughs> i'm sorry we're long-standing members of of ck so it's all good <laughs> because I, I was going to figure the craven is it's the mustache I think and that's the only thing that's kind of holding me back from thinking that is full on hot Matthias as well <laughs> but it, it's just it is the, the nipple eyes that's kind of where I draw the line <laughs> uh, Nick on the note of the nipple eyes we want to say thank you so much for joining us this is such a delight so cool to have that extra context those great stories behind 1602 it's so awesome thank you so much my pleasure everybody throwing so good talking to you Tucker Ryan so great talking to you guys and have a good day, police. Love you, Nick. Bye. <laughs>
Panic. <laughs> and that was Nicolo, as only Nicolo can great. can Nicolo. <laughs> Which was cool. I mean, I I like getting some of that perspective about the creation of of a book. Particularly, I like that you know Nick kind of offhandedly mentioned that they were working on it for a year before they were even really releasing it. It's like that kind of creative process and that length of time to dedicate to a work and to see it through to its fulfillment. And it it shows in the work. It's kind of remarkable and really, really fun to hear about. I think you can tell when you read it that this is something that someone has spent a lot of time on. And also because like the first issue, if you read through it, it's so elegantly paced and the introductions of all of these characters are done so well. And there are little hints here and there, but nothing is showed in your face. Thorne, as we go through the book, what are the kind of big story beats that stick out to you? If you recommend it to someone, you say, oh man, I, secretly, I can't wait till they get to issue five, issue, whatever it might be. What comes to mind? Well, I, I usually, I, I like to be delighted. I'm not too concerned with like the big story beats. I just like the little things that are just like, oh, that's so good. Like that tiny little pacing thing there. So like when when Fury is, it, he takes off his chain mail and he's like, hey, I'll fight you. You'll have the weapon. And if I beat you, then you will tell me who sent the assassin. And then they fight and he's marvelous and I don't know, hot. <laughs> and then there's a couple of pages in between, but then the queen dies because Duma sent his little thing with a, yeah. And it's so beautifully done. I knew it was going to happen. I reread it this week and I knew it was coming and I can kind of get goosebumps just thinking about it because it's just so well done. So that's one. And there are other things as well, like when Angel figures out that John Gray's Jean Gray and admits that, well, he did have a crush on, on the boy. That is one of those things that took me, not necessarily by surprise because there was such a like a sweet kind of love story there already, but it was just so beautifully done. It's such a sad moment too. The look on his face, I think Andy does that so well. Just that when they're on the ship and it's Scott and Angel and they're talking, it's just such a beautiful, quiet, sad moment. And I think the funeral, if we're calling it that, it's just, it was so beautifully done. And it could have gone wrong, if you know what I mean. Like it could have been cheesy and horrible, but it was just beautiful. And then like we're spoiling at this point, but Thor, when he enters the thing as Thor, that page, that's a good, it's a good Thor. (laughs) It's a very good Thor. You know, for for you as, as someone with Thor in your name, when you see the characterizations of Thor, do you have preferences of like, oh, this one's, I like this one more than this one, you know, because for us, even though we have Thor, there's so many versions and variants and, and different ones. I, you know, there's one that sticks out to me that I was enjoy going to. I think it's a Garth book. I think it's Thor Vikings. It's like a Max book. It's really, it's extremely violent. It's like just kind of like stomach churningly intense at times. But that's one depiction of Thor. Do you have some that you enjoy more than others? Well, I, I find it because I grew up with Norse mythology was very much a part of my life. Like the Bifrost is just over over there because there's a mountain there and the, there's a lot of rain on that specific mountains. So you get um, the rainbow all the time. 
So my mother, will, when we were driving and I was a kid, she would be like, oh, there's the Bifrost. It's open. Thor is here. <laughs> like it, so so when, when I started reading the Marvel version, I was like, he's too smart. He's too clever. He's too hot <laughs> in some ways. Like he should, he should not be this intelligent. He should always win, but he should just kind of stumble through it. And yeah, I don't know. To me, it, it feels like there there is the Marvel Thor, and then there is the Norse mythology Thor. It's a little stupider. <laughs> yeah. uh, when you're writing Thorn, do you take inspiration from specific runs? I'm not necessarily talking story wise, but maybe tonally. You talked about the pacing of this series and how excellent it is. Do you find that consciously being an inspiration to you when you're writing a story? Well, when I'm writing a story, I the pacing is the most important thing. I need the pacing to work before I can get the words down. I need to kind of have everything in its place and it drives me insane. And what I find is just reading greatly paced stories will help, but I don't I don't know how it goes from one thing to the other. I just try to get inspired and and try to figure out how to translate that into to scripts. But it, I mean the pacing for me it, it is when I get caught off guard by something and it's done pacing-wise, it's one of my favorite things that you can do with comics. And that is one of those things that Neil does really well here in his dense book where there are many words and many concepts. But he, he kind of plays with the pacing and it, all, it always kind of works. You never sit around going, oh, I, I wish they would stop talking now so we can get... like Because he, he knows when you're tired or something and then, then he'll shift. Yeah, there's a, a sense of... I think we talked about it on the show recently, like bang for your buck. You know, the comics are not an inexpensive hobby. It takes a lot. And I think when you look at a book like this, there is a lot in it, but it's, as you say, it's all rewarding. There's so much to mine from it. And, you know, going back and reading it now, I picked up so much more than I noticed the last time. I'm sure that with both of you, probably, when you go back to things that you love, you find new elements, new perspectives. Your life has changed from one reading to the next. So there are things that affect you in different ways. And and I think this one is really remarkable for the <laughs> the amount of things that can cause that reaction in, in a reader, which is really fun. Thorin, you, you mentioned that this was a book that you didn't know a lot of the characters going into it. You explored them after that. What were other, some of the books after you, you read this, where did you go from here? What were you reading? What was really like attracting you? Well, this is almost 20 years ago. So I'm going to get things wrong. Before I was reading Punisher, I was reading Wolverine, I was doing uh, like those things that I kind of felt had some sad, angry man who wanted to create some havoc. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but then that's when I kind of got introduced to the teams. And I don't remember the specific books that came right after. Also because I was borrowing a lot at the time because I had no money and, you know. But like Fantastic Four, I had never read, I, I didn't know anything about them before this book. So this was my introduction to the Fantastic Four. Wow, wow. Even now to this day, do, in the last few years, are there books that inspire you or that have moved you? We talked about the Jane Foster Thor run. Are there others that come to mind? Well, another thing that I kind of wanted to talk about here today was Journey into Mystery, mm. Kieran Gillen's yeah. epic. There's like, I don't know how many issues there are, but it takes a long time. Then again, it th does take quite a long time to read through this as well. So, but I think anything that's cosmic and well written, I'll just gobble up. 
Yeah. I think it was it Kieran who came back. There was a 1602 Angela story, if I remember correctly. Was that Kieran? Was I, it I, Marguerite Bennett and Kieran? Oh, uh, yeah, Marguerite Bennett. And that might just have been the Angela series that I also loved. Yeah, that I think was that was great. It was wonderful. Uh, I, I can see the the similarities and the connections and Stephanie Hahn's art in um, some of those places. Just it's so good. <laughs> like it's so mind blowing. Yeah, and I do enjoy very much. Like Kieran has a way of. I like the way he twists and turns and all of these kind of concepts that you find in Norse mythology. And that's kind of what I try to do as well, to a certain extent. I'm not sure I do it as well, but I, I find I go back to that quite a bit just to see how much you can get away with somehow, how far you can push it. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I have just some fan questions for you. Like, do you have characters that you would love to take a turn at writing in the future? Are there ones that you are chomping at the bit to maybe get your hands on one day? This, this is like the best question ever. Punisher is very far up on that list. I love the Punisher. Black Widow. Like, Anything Thor, Loki, I like it to do an entire Loki series because I'm writing Loki now and he's just, I don't, it's, you can do anything. You just have to pretend you're as clever as Loki and you'll make a great Loki story. That would be excellent fun, I think. But I mean, there's some, like, I didn't know that Craven would be this much fun to write. Because I kind of went to Jason, I'd written the outline. I was like, I need someone who can fill this specific role. And he went, Craven. I was like, yeah, are you sure? Are we sure? And he's like, yeah, yeah, Craven's going gonna to be fantastic. And then I kind of read up on him. I was like, yeah, it's, it's great. So I kind of, I read things and then sometimes I'll just get stuck. There will be stories and I'll be like, oh, I didn't know I did really wanted to write this thing. Now I do. But I find that I mostly enjoy them with relatively limited cost. I think it's easier to get away with. I, I wrote Danny Moonstar in the King and Black Valkyries thing. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm laying this out there for the future, just putting this into the universe. It is now my dream to have both you and Jason on an episode. We could talk about all of this stuff in 10 times more detail. That would be so cool. I think we should pressure him to come back and do it when Mighty Valkyries is released. So in a couple of months. Yeah, there you go. I also want to put this out in the world. I want a second Wolverine book with you writing it. I don't want to get anything away from Ben and, and Adam and, and the team, but we, we've done it before. We've had multiple Wolverine books at any given time. <laughs> I'm just saying, I would write any grumpy man really well. But I, say, I am a grumpy man. <laughs> I think that is the perfect note to end this on. Grumpy man, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I, I personal thank you for getting me to reread this book and rediscover it and actually love it in a new way. So it was great. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. So let's get Jason and do it again. Look, I yeah. <laughs> I adore Jason. I would love to have the two of you on. We'll talk some Valkyries. We'll talk some James Foster. It's going to be grand. Thank you again to Thorin. And hey, thank you to number one greatest man on planet Earth, Niccolo, for dropping by and giving us some really cool insight to the creation of 1602. As if I could love that guy anymore. He's just the best. It was so cool to hear his perspective on these things. All right, let's 
wrap things up here. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, me, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is Pull List's audio development manager. And Alana Hernson, the best in the world. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tucker, it has been an absolute pleasure. Do I get to deliver the line? Is this where I say the line, Tucker? You know what? You can. This is Marvel. Your universe.